0: Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the show that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jay Humphrey, and alongside Damien Hughes, an expert in high-performing team cultures, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged and to grow. Here's what's coming up.
1: I think Formula One is not just the best sport in the world, but the best industry in the world. Because no other place can you challenge yourself every week to the absolute limit of what you're capable of. I didn't have anything else in my life. I didn't have family. I didn't have um, partners. Nothing. It was It was about work. If you are prepared to sacrifice everything, you can have greatness. Uh, you can have growth. You can have the direction of travel. But there's no such thing as all of it. It doesn't work that way. I want to make sure that I'm earning my place. This isn't a right. I have to earn it and I have to earn it every single day. Break everything. This is an opportunity you'll never have in your lifetime. Break everything. Learn and use the experience.
0: So welcome to High Performance, James Vowles, one of the unsung superstars of Formula One. The Williams team principal has been in the world's fastest sport for almost 25 years. In that time, he's worked with five world champion winning drivers, including Lewis Hamilton and Michael Schumacher. But how did he make his Formula One dream a reality? How did he help Mercedes to those multiple titles? What were the keys to winning eight successive Constructors World Championships? What separates the best from the rest? What made him take the leap to Williams? What did he find when he got there? And how was he trying to transform the team? All of that is on today's fascinating High Performance episode with James Vowles. Right, let's do it and welcome James Vowles to the show. But before we start, a few messages from our valued partners who help keep High Performance totally free. And of course, I know that ads are not for everyone. If you want to listen to High Performance ad-free, then you can do so on the High Performance app. Hey everyone, I really hope that you've seen that we have announced an incredible collaboration with one of my favourite fashion brands, Percival. We've worked with London-based Percival to create our own collection of wardrobe staples that will make you look and feel ready for the day ahead with some hidden high-performance messages to keep you inspired. We're talking about things like hoodies, track pants, a fleece, a nice oversized t-shirt and a cap as well as some other bits and pieces. I've worn the stuff. Honestly, I love it. And the little high performance touches just sort of separate it from the stuff that you normally see. So if you're interested, I'm going to give you a discount. Just head over to Percival right now and get 20% off their new range by using the code HP20 at the checkout. Go to PercivalClo.com. That's PercivalClo.com and use HP20 at the checkout. Look, myself and Damien want just one minute of your time to talk to you about WHOOP, game-changing wearable tech. And we've partnered with WHOOP to offer you a 30-day risk-free trial. All you need to do is hit the link in the description to this podcast and you can make 2024 your best year yet.
2: WHOOP measures your fitness, your recovery, and your sleep. And best of all, it coaches you through. And we know the importance of getting feedback and consistent behaviors. WHOOP helps you get both.
0: And I think that sleep is the underrated golden bullet for high performance. I can't talk highly enough of WHOOP. And if you're interested in signing up, all you need to do is hit the link in the description to this podcast. And once you've done that, you can go to the WHOOP app, hit the community tab, join the high performance community, and you might just win the chance to come and join us for a recording of the high performance podcast.
2: So sign up now at join.whoop.com forward slash HPP. Right. Back to the episode.
3: Well, James,
0: thank you very much for joining us. What is high performance, do you think? It's a
1: good question. For me, certainly, I, I can only put it within the, reg- the remit that I've been working in for, for 20, 25 years or so, but it is against peers that are as intelligent uh, and as strong as you are overcoming them and become fundamentally uh, the top of your game in that region. So it's pushing everyone further than they ever thought they could be pushed it's exploring boundaries that you'd never thought you could go past and defining and redefining and actually becoming the lead in terms of this is now the the mark by which everyone else will assess whether they're doing a good or a bad job by. So how competitive are you? Oh, you, Massively. It's very difficult to even put in words how competitive it is. Definitely, let's not play Monopoly. Oh, really? Uh, or, or, any, or anything else. Anything else for that matter, I think. So where did that first begin? Can you remember? I would say it's always been there to a certain extent there's just some items that will trigger me to want to be the best in it and there's other items that didn't for example in the in the early school years i didn't want to be necessarily best in the class in fact i felt that that would that would put a a target on me and i was more interested in other aspects of things um and I, i wouldn't say that in the early days i was outstandingly good at everything i was actually just good at everything rather than outstandingly good or excellent. So there's always better than me in every category. Yeah. But if you, if we got to a new task, I'd be reasonable at it. it's probably the best way of putting it. Um, and I think it happened very much actually at university. It was probably where it properly triggered my thought. And now's the time to really be um, the best at what you do. And it was especially um, when I made the decision that this is where I wanted to be. And I realised very swiftly that this isn't about average anymore. This isn't about being good. This is the single best person will make it. So that's where you need to be.
2: So that sounds like a very conscious decision just to be good rather than great at school. Were you always aware that you had the capacity to
1: go up the gears then? I, I think the best way of describing it is my teachers definitely did because my report card said incredibly intelligent but could do much better if he just applied himself. I'm fortunate. I don't think school was particularly challenging it's just i would find other things that would distract me that i found more exciting more interesting um well at the time football for example I'd, i'd play um there was a whole group of us but we'd play football four times a day to give an idea to it it wouldn't be unusual to walk away with an hour and a half of football under your belt a day or more um or cycling at the time so i cycled to school and back for many many years which fitness was absolutely fantastic but i found I challenged myself and I started timing it and I thought, right, how do we take time out of it? So you can see the competitive spirit, but it was against myself. And I couldn't do it without some metric to say, this is where you were, let's move it on from there. But I didn't realise at the time, I mean, at 16, you barely dress yourself properly, let alone know what you're going to form into later on in life. I didn't know where that was going to construct to, but definitely I didn't get that from schooling. It made no difference to me whether it, I went to a, an international school, so you're rated out of seven. It made no difference to me whether you got a five, six or seven. It just didn't trigger any response to me whatsoever at all. And I can flip the question then on its head. You made a conscious decision not to
0: be extremely good when you were at school but then you have to make the conscious decision to be extremely good when you're at university because the penny has dropped that if you want to be in Formula 1 it is a sport that rewards the elite so a lot of people think I want to be the best right what behaviours followed on from the moment when you made that decision that this is going to be the
1: life you pursue the the best one is probably it's a compulsive behaviour which is not necessarily always attributed with good things but it's compulsive you are focused on singular goal necessarily it doesn't mean that there's one goal behind it there's many many achievements behind that but um you are constantly doubting whether you are the best in the world and as a result of that i mean best in the world sounds extraordinary we're at university studying but you're you're constantly doubting am i doing enough to be the best person that comes through the door of an f1 team in the next year And so as a result of that, you push yourself harder and harder and harder. You stop doing just the coursework you're doing. But I started also, as soon as I had an hour or two free, I was down at Snetterton at the racetrack. um, And then started working with other entities, then started writing some software in the background that did something quite clever in terms of motorsports at the same time. You start doing not one thing focused, but as many things to your, um, basically consider it like a tree. You're adding just branches to your tree to make sure that it's just not... One tall branch, but a whole tree that people look at and go, okay, this is quite special. Just to dive in quickly, you were corrected there by your own humility, telling
0: you not to say best in the world, right? Yeah. I get the sense that actually with the job that
1: you do now, that has to be the aim, right? I, I don't think my humility will ever let me. I'm against peers just straight away in the business, nine other peers, of which um, many of them are multiple world champions in their position. I'm not, we've turned up and, and we've scored a few points. We've done okay. But that's the benchmark. The benchmark is when others look at me and go, yeah, you're multiple world champion and you've pulled a team to the front, you can be compared to, but still not yeah. the best in the world at what you do. There's always another level. But that's and, where you want to be. Without doubt. That's why I joined here. That's why I joined here because we have the opportunity to. You could do this and join an organization where you're just moving a few little dials around, this few little just fine tuning, or you can get here with the right investment, which is what we have, dig deep, foundations down, and start rebuilding it such that you leave your fingerprint on the sport for many, many years to come. And that opportunity comes once in a lifetime. And it's an opportunity to do something that I believe I know how to do this. Let's go and prove that to the world fundamentally and keep challenging yourself every day. But back to the original point, the, I think you were talking about high performance. The humility is what keeps you back and making sure you know that you have to keep pushing yourself until it hurts every day, because that's what you need to do to be the best in the world.
2: But as well as humility, James, I see that in your story, there's an awful lot of self-awareness as well. And, before we move on to your subsequent career into Formula One, I'm interested in that moment when you were at UEA University and made the decision that you're on a career path that you can see the next 30 years spooling out in front of you and you decide to change lanes.
1: Yeah, it it was... So I think, first of all, let's, let's wind to university. Um, uh, I did all going back a little bit further, all of my schooling was in Geneva. And it's a little bit different to international school in Geneva. You, you fundamentally, from the age of five until 18, you're in the same same school. It's three different buildings on the site, but you never move more than 10 metres. So a um, bit of a culture shock when I came to the UK and found out people travel miles between each school. Um, but you're very disconnected from the UK. And I wasn't actually sure whether I wanted to complete my university education in Switzerland or in the UK, decided the UK in the end. And actually UEA was nothing more complicated than, um, my sister was there at the time. And I thought, eh, why not? It'll be fine. Um, which, which in hindsight, as a, it's a fantastic university. There's nothing wrong with that, but, Probably I could have orientated myself more in a different direction had I been more um, savvy. Again it goes back to I really wasn't focused enough on on the right journey at the time for me. But irrespective of that, went to UEA, um, I studied a combination of computer science and mathematics. And it was nothing more than I was good at those two things. I had no idea what I wanted to do in life, but what I did know is let's do something I'm good at because you can get through it. And pretty much once you've done those two things, you're back in the 90s. Computer science was always going to be this large area of growth, so you have some skills behind you. Mathematics is just this big area that can apply to near enough everything within the scientific world. It didn't take long. It took about a year and a bit of doing that when I thought there was just zero chance I can do this for. Um, the next 30 40 50 years no chance it's um it's just not interesting to me at all um it's a means to an end rather than something i wanted to participate in and at the time i was looking at what jobs can you do and and there's sort of this finance there's KPMG there's um deloitte there's there's a bunch of these but none of them none of them create any excitement to me i'm not someone that enjoys sitting behind a desk at all um and it was you know going back way before then, one and some of the fondest memories I have, and, and we're sitting in front of these cars now, you, you won't see it because the cameras are pointed the other way, but I remember watching these cars on TV, sat on a sofa um, at a home in Geneva, and um, at the time you didn't think this could be a career. No chance. You're sort of looking at it, you don't even realise that there's a couple hundred people behind the scenes as it was back then, now a thousand people. But it, I started doing more and more research into it and started finding out actually there is careers you can make out of being involved in something that is um, taking a couple hundred people and every weekend challenging you to understand, are you good enough on the day? And that, that just overnight triggered with me. I went, this is it. This is what I want to do. Sat there, wrote, uh, I, I remember it very distinctly and I've got goosebumps now talking about it, but just wrote, um, I'm pretty sure it was 11 letters at the time. I think there was 11 teams, but... Um wrote eleven letters, got really good paper. Um <laughs> It was it was a good letter as well. Um there was a CV in there, but the C V was basic because all I had to that point was um education, then a couple of, of jobs that I was doing in the summer always just to earn money. Um but but nothing in this remit. Um What did the letter say? The letter was fundamentally this. It is um I, I think Formula One is not just the best sport in the world but the best industry in the world because no other place can you I'm paraphrasing it wasn't exactly written this way but no other place can you challenge yourself every week to the absolute limit of what you're capable of Um, I can only see my career taking place within that and I want your help and guidance in order to help me achieve that goal I know I may not have everything at the moment but help me at least understand what I need to do to get there so it was um not a direct, I want a job, because I didn't think that would work. But it was, I, I will change my life to come to you. Help me, help me drive that. And there were two responses back that were favourable. It's, it's unfortunate. Someone asked me the other day, do I still have those letters? Because what happened is going through it, there was all of them were rejection letters. All, every single one was, thanks very much. It printed on beautiful lettered, um, uh, paper, really thick paper. And I put every single one on the ball, uh, with blue tack, which if I remember correctly may have cost me on the exit out of uh, that room because the blue tack actually pulled paint off, but irrespective, they were there. And that became my every morning when you wake up, that's where I want to be. You want to be there, change everything and let's get on to it. The letters were constructive, um, but there was two really constructive ones. British American Racing and Williams were constructive, both of them at the time. The rest were very short and concise. We don't have any room for you at this time. Thank you very much, but no, thank you. Um, But those two were constructive. And British American Racing went further, actually, to give me a contact within there that I spoke to. Um, And he said, look, here's, here's the reality behind it. We don't need mathematicians and we don't really take graduates on. The company's 250 people. So how you got into Formula One, I wasn't sure back then. You were sort of mid-30s and you were in Formula One. But what they did say is, here's the, here's the issue. We need engineering. Um, it's great having what you have as background, but you need engineering uh, as a string to your bow. Um, so what I immediately started doing, um, they didn't request experience, but I took it upon myself to go, actually, what I'm going to do now is bolster my experience every weekend that I'm free and just make sure that I'm doing um, racing, fundamentally. And so I started in really junior sort of GT categories, um, then did a little bit of Formula Ford, and then it started building from there at the same time. So just, um, there was no there was no free minute anymore. And if there was, it means I'm doing a bad job of filling it with building my experience. And one thing that came on board um, just around this time, towards the time where I was graduating, was Cranfield was starting up a new course, which is um, engineering, fundamentally. And Cranfield for um, post-degree Um, Education is, in engineering anyway, is one of the most respected. It's a brilliant place. Applied to it. There was over, I think at the time, 2,500 applications for 20 spots. I thought, I haven't really got much of a chance at this. Went there and interviewed um, and got in and was successful to go in. But to get there, um, prior to that, basically wasn't just doing the motorsport. I was now studying engineering fundamentally whilst finishing off the mathematics and computer science degree, because I wanted to make sure I had sufficient to get through the tests for the course. You're 20
2: years old at this stage. You're going up against two and a half thousand other candidates into a world where you're interested but don't necessarily have a background. What did you do to prepare yourself to get one of those 20 spots?
1: The the main thing was just making sure that um, any minute was free that was free in the day train yourself in what you think they're going to want out of you. So they want they want engineers. And, and it's an engineering course, to be really clear. So you're in a master's level in engineering. I was the only person on the course without an engineering degree. Simple as that. So I had to have enough foundations that I could at least blag the interview sufficiently that, that I can get through this. Because some of the aspects of it, um, when you're in the context, complex mathematics of aerodynamics and structures, it's very, very difficult. Um, so those are the main areas I started to put a lot of focus into, and again, bolstered it by working with teams. The problem with working with teams is you gain the real the real tangible world experience, but teams don't even really understand when they're buying a car and these, the complexity behind all of it. All I did though is, is um, there was a bunch of books um, that I read, normally read until, I'm really good at working until very late in the night, so um, do the normal university bits, but I didn't find that awfully challenging. And it's not because I'm terribly clever. It, it just felt natural. When things feel natural, they're not difficult. But I'd spend pretty much from 6 p.m. till um, sometimes 2 3 a.m., which is where I felt just really good in myself and I could work through. And you're young, you don't need that much sleep as it turns out, um, studying basically engineering at the same time. Um, very focused on what I thought Cranfield would be looking for. And it was sufficient to get me through. I think um, their thought process at the time. Uh, also would have helped me, which is we want some level of diverse thinking on the course. We don't just want um, 20 engineers. Actually, they were quite interested when I asked them, how did I get this? They said, A, you showed enough capacity to learn and grow very quickly. By the way, the challenge on your shoulders is you've got six months to get to their level, so good luck. Um, but also, you come from a different background. Both your initial um, education not being UK based but um, the mathematics and computer science background we actually think you could form something quite interesting so that's why we took a risk on you and why does it give you goosebumps now when you reflect Be- because um, the, the main thing is that you you completely changed your life you have this path that's in front of you that that's laid out, but you can define where it is. And I literally took a right 90 degree turn to it, conscious decision that that's the route I'm going down and never doubted it, never debated it, never moved back. And there were hard times. I was in a tremendous amount of debt. I paid for a lot of this university education, worked in pubs and other places to try and make money. The the GT racing side, Formula Ford, they didn't pay any money at all. That was just experience growth. So I worked um, actually for, for many years for free in motorsport in order to build up when I had to in terms of experience but I was prepared to put it all online and risk everything to have the opportunity to get into the sport and
0: that was a young man who when it came to Formula 1 knew so little you're now someone who knows so much multiple drivers championships multiple constructors championships numerous teams you're now a team principal the most senior job you can have in the sport so let's move the conversation on to Formula 1 with all the experience you've got if I ask you what makes a championship winning team? What's the answer?
1: I'd always go back to um, people and culture. They're the two things that drive all of it. Machines help. They make things more efficient. Computers help. They make things more efficient. But once you have a workforce that is 100% aligned with the direction of travel you're moving in, that are not fighting each other, but fighting everyone else, That are aligned with each other. It's one team pulling together, the camaraderie almost pulling when you're you're in the trenches and you're really suffering, pull you up and want to do harder. You want to do everything for those around you. You don't want to be seen as the weakness in the team. So everyone is creating the strength that's bolstering everyone forward in the right direction. Mm. And a culture of one that is, um, push the boundaries. Don't be afraid of the boundaries. Don't be afraid to redefine what has happened in the sport previously, because that is the beauty of where we are as a journey. We are these small tiny in the grand scheme of engineering teams where we can push the boundaries of engineering and we should do every day of the week. And that's not something you can find nearly anywhere else in engineering. Engineering is typically five-year lead lead times, make sure you're doing something that's robust and reliable. We are these dynamic groups. Um, th- this is actually Toto's words, but I really like this, this phrase, the Navy SEALs of engineering, but I, I haven't found my own version of it yet. So I'll, I'll plagiarise his for the time being. Absolutely, that's what we are. We are the best of the best, the elite within the sport. And you have no bounds, fundamentally. The cost cap's not really a bound. It's actually an opportunity. And so the real key behind it is people and culture. Once you have those two, everything else
0: flies. You you mentioned about being in the trenches. And we will talk about Toto. We'll talk about aligning teams. We'll talk about creating culture. But You mentioned really early on there about a winning team is being in the trenches, dealing with the hard stuff. If I take you back to November, December 2008, when you were at what was about to no longer be Honda. What did you learn in that period and how much were you in the trenches there where you were effectively working for a team that we thought were about to leave the sport and and you had a workforce there not knowing whether they were gonna get paid one week to, to next?
1: Um, the, f- the first thing it taught me is that um, there's a fragility that perhaps you don't often consider. That actually wasn't that bad. This is going to sound very negative, and I don't mean it to, but I'll I'll give you how it really was having a job in Formula 1 in 2001, 2002, 2003. When I first joined, within months, uh, about 30, 40 people, remembering the company's only 250 people, gone. Lost their job. In 2002, same thing, about 50, 60 people, gone. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was Formula 1 back then. And all you did really simple rule of thumb. Make sure you're not in the bottom half of the team. You're going to be okay. And to ask one of your aunts, one of your questions, why did I keep pushing myself? I was the other way around. I wanted to be in the top 1%. Zero chance of losing my job. Um, hey. Always doubted, am I good enough? Always, always through all of that. Um, because you're against peers that are incredible at what they're doing. But that drive is still with me today. I want to make sure that I'm um, earning my place. This isn't a right I have to earn it and I have to earn it every single day. And that will stay with me forever. And that creates the humility. It creates all the other lovely cultural aspects out of it. Um, So what was a culture like then in Formula One in a period where you knew people were going to get booted out and you had to
0: be in the top half of that business to not be one of them? It was um, as you would expect it to be.
1: Um, It wasn't a nice culture to be in fundamentally because if you couldn't raise yourself, you'd pull others down. That's the simple way of doing it. Uh, which is why i was talking about being in the top one percent now you don't worry about that anymore you're you're so detached from it that you're not part of this politics or otherwise how did you get there um no other way than saying it than just hard work it was uh i lived in brackley at the time which is where the team's based and pretty much might have had a sleeping bag at work for for what it took i just i was there the real way i did it that's probably an exaggeration of it actually it's not that i slept at work particularly but i i I didn't have anything else in my life. I didn't have family. I didn't have um, partners. I think it was, it was about work. But one of the clear things I remember, and it would be my advice to anyone else there, out there as well. When there was a difficult problem, I would always put my hand up first and say, I'll take that straight away. Anything that people just thought, I don't really want anything to do with it. And it could be difficult. It could be a lot of work. My hand would go up first and say, I'll take that on. And just kept taking it on and Why? taking it on and taking it on. Because those that, that take on those work and and fundamentally do a good job with it. You then build your team up around it, et cetera, but you become a reliable force within the team. You increase your know, your knowledge, your learning, and all the other associations with it as well. Um, and that that was sort of how I went about it. And my advice to anyone would be, don't shy away from the difficult bits, it's quite the opposite, push into them.
2: Can I tell you about a comment you made about when you were in the classroom at school, where you said that I didn't want a target on my back, so I deliberately chose to be good rather than great. And now it sounds like you've made that mentality shift to say, I'm not bothered that there's a target on my back. I will put my hand up. What was that shift like? What did it
1: involve? I think school as well, it has to be recognized that I don't think I was the cleverest person in the room. I think there were other people there that were far more intelligent than I was. I have a balance, I hope, a little bit between what I call EQ and IQ. But at school, um, it was also, bullying would be the wrong word it wasn't bullying but you you were isolated when you were very clever at school i didn't want that at work it's very different when you're in an environment where you're surrounded by peers that want exactly the same as you do which is you want to be the best in the world you're not isolated you're rewarded so it's a cultural change that went with it where i thought
2: but you did say that there was also a culture where the drag you down that if they couldn't do it. So it's almost like the adult version of bullying, is it not? it,
1: it is. But the difference here is you can put yourself so far above the power pit by, by describing what I just said. If there's a bunch of jobs, I'll get them done. Simple as that. That doesn't matter what your peers do fundamentally now. Um you're above all of that. Um and that's that approach doesn't work at school. It doesn't you don't have that direct contact with teachers day to day, if that makes any sense. Um, I mean, it's an interesting analogy. I've never really thought about it in this much depth, but it's a good conversation to be having. But for me at the time, it was um, also based on the fact that the job I initially had was this very kind at the time. I got a job sort of created for me, but it's not what I wanted to be. I knew who I wanted to be, which at the time was race engineering and then growing. And so what I was doing was when I was pulling on jobs, they were helping me in that direction of travel to things. Um, so now you had breadth across multiple parts of the organization that perhaps others wouldn't at the time. And again, as much as you could be pulled down in certain areas. And, and by the way, the pulling down, it's not, people don't do it to bring the team down. They'll only do it if they think there's someone very close to them that they can just pip ahead of. But if it's someone clearly whose goals and aspirations are to make us better, make the team better, actually you will not you won't pull backwards, I would say. And
2: that description you said about almost sleeping in the office and being quite monastic in in, in your lifestyle, what were the consequences of that?
1: The the biggest one is you have no life outside of it. As long as you treat this as your hobby, your passion, your life, you don't have any of those other things anymore. This is it. Um, And that you form relationships that are keeping you going because you everyone needs something there's a support network it becomes okay but it, it definitely for example um i had a long-term relationship that that was destroyed um, for various reasons and and rightly so i i didn't see her at all in that period of time family i didn't see perhaps save for once a year and christmas for a few days that was it um i have nieces and nephews that are fantastic i haven't seen them go up You've got to accept this becomes your sole desire on what you want. You really have to give up everything for it. Or at least that's the, c- the conclusion I came to, to go away and do it. You don't have to, of course. But for me, it was, this is the compromise I'm going to make.
0: And do you regret that?
1: No. No, no, not at all. It was conscious decisions I was making, and they've led me to where I am today. But it's it's putting it out there that if you are prepared to sacrifice everything, you can have greatness. Uh, You can have growth. You can have the direction of travel, but there's no such thing as all of it. It doesn't work that way.
0: Let's talk then about the change in culture
1: at what was, for those that aren't well-versed in Formula
0: 1, British American Racing did pretty well as a team. And then Honda did okay. Braun, one season, amazing. I have fond memories of that time. Absolutely. Uh, And then it became Mercedes. Total Wolf arrived. And then by 2014 you won the Constructors and the Drivers' World Championship. I'm really fascinated by this period of change and turnaround, the arrival of Toto, the change to a winning team, the change in culture. There's a lot to pick out there, but I would, I'd almost love just, when I talk about that period, what comes into your head that really signifies the change?
1: It happened before 2014. Um, At the end of 2012, I remember this vividly, we didn't score a point in eight races. And at the time... Um, that, that was, I mean, I think by far our worst year, uh, at the end of that year, certainly. I think we won one race that year, which was Shanghai. Um, and you're questioning, am I, am I in the right place? I haven't come here to just get a car going around the track. I've come here to make a difference. The senior leadership team at the time. So there's no one individual in an F1 team. I still maintain that today. It doesn't matter whether it's Toto or me. There's no one individual. It's a a group of individuals. That's why I go back to the people and culture element of things. But the senior leadership team at the time, um, within the era of 2012, 2013 and Mercedes, we were becoming stronger and stronger as a unit. Um, And the cultural change happened before Toto came there. And the cultural change was this. Have no fear of failure. We've done enough failure. I'm comfortable with it now. Have no fear of failure. Um, we need to change what we're doing. What we're doing is not good enough. It's not the standard in Formula One. The catalyst was Toto, and it's really important to say it's not that he had no part in at all, far from it. It's that the direction of travel already started prior to him joining 13, but he mirrors the views that we did. And that's why it gelled incredibly quickly overnight. Um, because we we had now the impetus at all levels within the organisation of enough is enough. We're changing. We want to be the best. What do we have to do? What was the
2: consequence? I mean, that's quite a seismic shift to not have a fear of failure in a sport that is defined almost by winners and losers. What was the consequences of that?
1: First and foremost is you will, as you get a group of individuals and enough of us that stood up and, and had no concerns about talking about a failure, I mean, if you want the most public example, I came on the radio at some stage in front of 60 million people and said, I've got this wrong, but here's what we're going to do. Um, so that gives you the confidence that in the old Formula One, that will get you fired. You're done. You make a you make a mistake. There was a, a perception that you're done. You're fired as a result of it. Um, and so you have to go against years, literally years worth of culture that's built up that way. But because there was a strong leadership team and we knew that as long as we stuck together on on what we were thinking as a result of this, we'd move forward and others would actually join us. In the initial part of it, you'd had what you'd expect. People would go, why are we talking about this? It doesn't make sense. We have to make change. But by change, they mean that people are failing. And then very quickly, actually, um, in 13 especially. So 13 is where all of that got applied because the car in 13 was brilliant on one lap. Fastest car on one lap, no doubt about it. Um, we're probably the only car, I think, to have qualified first and second and be out the points within nine laps in Barcelona. That's what it was. That was the car. We we made a lot of mistakes that year on uh, a number of tyres and setup direction. Um, and uh, I, I remember it very vividly um, because this issue wasn't just in Barcelona, but I remember the board were there in Barcelona and I made um, some claims that we understood far more what we had before we had the most disastrous race that we had. Um, but not postulated in the way of we're great. It was, here's where we've gone wrong and here's the things we are trying to correct it, and here's what we expect the outcomes to be. So proper experimental-driven and data-driven systems. Um, actually, to the credit of the board, um, we failed badly, but we showed them how we are then rebuilding from that failure. They embraced it rather than pushed it away so there was a cultural change that was sufficiently strong enough um that there was a time that a few of us thought we're done um this is this is not looking good for us and actually um, that the culture change was enough already to take place that We had good momentum that we were able to change. And 2013 turned into one of our best years at the end of it. And 13 was the foundations that led towards 14, 15. Everyone wins 14. Brilliant championship. But if you look at the end of 13, especially around Budapest, we went round from a car that was the fastest in qualifying to the one that can beat a Red Bull in the race. And that only came about because we kept resetting ourselves, going through learning processes, and make sure we changed everything. And we changed a lot on that car. So how... How did you go about making
0: this culture change? Uh, And I think the point you make about coming on the radio and admitting failure is a really powerful one. Like I used to love it when I was watching a race and I heard, it's James, because I like... (laughs) (laughs) What follows next is some honesty about actually what's going on here. There was very little hiding behind things, which you hear a lot of. I mean, I remember that moment, you know, to Lewis, you said, I threw away the wind, didn't you? Correct, yeah. And to hear you say, well, we changed the culture. It sounds so easy... Could you give us a couple of tangible things that happened that drove
1: that? So here's, here's a little bit of the secret sauce. First and foremost, you need to have a clear idea of what culture you want in your head. But it doesn't matter what culture you want in your head to a certain extent. That's not how the culture is created. The culture is actually created from your workforce. It's created bottom up. But you can have an idea. You should have an idea, a very clear idea of what culture you want. You should have some... Um, items that help on that journey behaviours, values items like that and then you need a leadership team that enact every single one of those behaviours and culture not bits of it every single one of it behave in the way that you want your workforce to be as well it's not words and it's not um, do as I say not do as I do it is behave in the way what were the behaviours within Mercedes it was starting with a failure one it is absolutely first of all Data-driven. Everything, Every single decision has to be data-driven. It's not heuristics, it's not I think, it's not I haven't looked at the data. It is data-driven approach to it, experiment-driven. I think this will happen. Here's the data. Here's what the outcome was. Learning loop on the back of it. Make sure that you understand exactly what went wrong, what went right, and learn from it. Because all too often people go through that and then the learning loop's forgotten. You just have a result. That's actually the most important bit of that whole process. The next bit is fear of failure. That's failure. And the learning loop is the important bit you get out of it. Make sure you embrace that failure. Reward that failure. Show it to everyone and go, here's what I got wrong. Can you learn anything else from it? And the next bit, and this is the hardest bit because humans aren't very good at it, is once you have that failure, where else are we going to fail in a similar way from that learning? So not wait for it to happen, but how else can you apply that learning to 10 or 12 or 20 other areas where we can stop failure from happening and we can already start learning from it? And the reason why humans are really bad at that is when you have success, you often don't think about the downsides involved with it. And there's many times in Mercedes where we won by a second, not 10 seconds. And you go, that's done. That's a win. Completely wrong. Why was it nine seconds closer for all the other competitors than it was other races? I mean, we were dominant, so we might as well be honest about it. And those questions actually led to a lot more unlocking of potential. But it's hard for a human to do. It's really painful when you fail. Really hurts, doesn't it? I think there's, I've read this in a book, so whether it's true or not, but it's about 10 times more powerful having a failure than it is having success. So you need you need to be really looking at your success to really break it down, whereas the failure hurts so much that you want to get to the bottom of it. And that's, I mean, that's the secret sauce. Everything there is there. Enact the behaviours you want. Make sure, and as I say, don't say them, enact them. And then encourage your workforce that this is how you want them to be. This is how we can become better. And you'll find that in time, It comes through bottom-up. And it depends on the size of the organization, how long it takes. Eight people, probably quite quick. A thousand people, quite slow.
3: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads
0: Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift. And many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go. The neuroscience-based, personalised brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own Personal neuro coach, and look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using Mindlift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better, and I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile, I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings onto you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless, for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network, and you can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com HPP. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mint mobile for details.
2: So give us some insight into how you park your ego to do that. Cause you're right. It is painful to fail or sometimes we entrench our views or we defend our position. And I love the learning loop of going back and admitting failure is something to be embraced rather than feared. What lessons did you learn James about
1: parking your ego to be able to do that? I, I'll i say this here on, on camera and on Vodcast, I'm not the cleverest person uh, in this company. I wasn't the cleverest person in Mercedes. I have no doubt about that. There are many, many other intelligent engineers way above me. Um, I think what I'm able to do though is to bring balance between how to communicate information, how to digest it, how to give clear direction. That's the strength I have. And enough intelligence to be able to understand the very intelligent people in the room. In terms of what's good and what's bad out of it. I will always find someone better than me in every regard. I can always find a reset for me. And and that's that's how I live my life. It's it's not that I want to be beaten by these individuals. I want to then improve myself to become closer to them as much as I possibly can. Um, But this isn't about me as a one individual. It's not about the fear of what people think of me either. Because that's secondary to, I just want us to be better. And as soon as you think this isn't about you, this is about the wider good of, in this case, Williams, you're, you become not insignificant, but you're just a part of the puzzle on the journey.
0: There's something very unique, though, about Formula One, which is the team sport and the individual. So actually, you know, when you're at Mercedes and you're suddenly focusing on failures, using them as a learning loop, pushing forwards, playing the long-term game, knowing that eventually things will get good, that's actually... Great for the team who are there and are gonna get their salary and they're gonna be okay. It's not so good if you're the driver and you're like, well, I'm only on a one or two year contract. I can't, I can't hang around. And it wasn't any old driver you were working with at Mercedes as well. You know, before Lewis Hamilton it was Michael Schumacher, right? Yep. So I'm interested in how you give those messages to these driven, often quite ego-driven, self-centered, individualistic sportsmen that playing the team game but the driver's results is what really matters to them
1: you've you've probably hit the nail on the thing that makes me one of the most excited by Formula 1 because I struggle to find another sport similar to this where it's a team sport but it starts with beating your teammate you don't beat your teammate you're in question and here's how it's built up and you'll see this a lot with the messaging I've used here with regards to Logan for example the key behind it is that that's just one fight but actually, each individual contributes towards the success of the team, simple as that. Lewis, when he joined us, was, and still is today, uh, in the most uh, within my Mercedes career, the most naturally talented driver that I had worked with, including Michael, just so much natural talent. Um, the journey we took him on was it isn't we'll win championships together. His mentality at the time when he joined was was a brilliant one. I can see why it's successful, but it's I'm gonna win every race at all costs. Doesn't matter what the cost is, I'm gonna win that race and done. And if you speak to him today, it's migrated to he accepts that the second places and the third places are how you win the championship. And building and working with a team on the days where you can't win the race will give you far more reward than pushing everyone away in order to win that single race out of it. How did you get in there though? Because that was twenty years of learning that he brought to the team, which was about him winning races. Uh, so- absolutely that. It, it wasn't the journey of one individual, or even Toto, or myself, or at the time, Shove. I would also say Nicky Lauda was a strong part of it as well. A strong-minded individual that had won multiple world champions, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. starts with being open and honest with the drivers, just simple as that, all too often, we don't actually go to the real truth behind the matter and we skirt around it. They are, after all, in many regards, the best in the world at what they do. So it becomes difficult to have a direct conversation. And you'll see the way I am publicly, the way I am here, and the way I am would be off camera is exactly the same. It's open, honest, transparent. And it starts there. You have that open, honest conversation about it, which includes when their behaviours are ones that are hurting the team and hurting themselves, not helping. Can you give us an example of that? The... The, the biggest thing that um, we got into with the drivers 2014, for example, was that both of them knew, both Nico and Lewis knew, that it was one of those two winning the year. They knew, by the way, before we turned the first wheel in the, uh, the first race. And so um, it took quite a while. Um, but my role in this was I constructed a document that created some very clear how we are going to work with each other, how we're going to fight each other. Some, What at the time was called rules of engagement, um, changed later to another term that was less military, um, but racing intense. But irrespective, um, it was some really clear boundaries on this is how we're going to behave and this is how we're going to perform. And there was a lot to do. And it started with this, and it starts with an ethos that I believe in today, but the whole first page was about being a sportsman. And to explain it, You can win a world championship, but if you've done so in a way that is not fair and sportsmanlike, you will have regrets for the rest of your life. Yep, you have a championship to your name, but it'll be sullied, it'll be muddied, it won't be pure. We, at the time there, we want to win things by doing things just better than everyone else, not because we've found other mechanisms. We just want to be better than everyone else. And that applies to the drivers as it does to the engineers within the team as it does to the designers. And it was very much bringing on that journey and, and making sure they're aware that, You can become the best sportsman in the world, which will create a legacy beyond many, many years. Or you can win a race by doing something that has perhaps forced or hurt or damaged your teammate. Which one do you want to go down? And it's a very simple choice when you present it to a sportsman ultimately. They want the one that creates a legacy in many years to come. Michael, incredible man, but still marred by 1997 in many regards. It stands out in everyone's mind. Um, And we created the mindset that that's not how I want to be remembered. I want to be remembered that we were a dominant force working together. And between the two of you within these rules, the fastest driver across 20 races will win. Not the fastest driver on a weekend, not the one that's done something that's maybe benefited them in the short term, the fastest driver on 20 races. And we'll construct it and make sure it's built that way. And we'll give you each equal opportunity. And they bought into it. Um, And that created a good environment. It doesn't mean that in time we didn't have a breakdown. I mean, everyone will remember 2016 Barcelona. You're talking about when Lewis and Nico crashed into each other. Yeah, absolutely. Still still sticks in my mind today because you're taking two elite sportsmen that were constrained within their boxes and just got frustrated. Um, But actually what you do at the time is you don't back off. You double down and go, this is how it's going to be. Can you tell us what you learn from these great drivers, whether it is... Nico Rosberger won a
0: world title, Lewis Hamilton multiple world champion, Michael Schumacher, one of the legends of the sport. They're all enigmas in their own unique way. They don't share too much because I think they sometimes, particularly when they're still competing, they worry that it maybe removes either some of the magic around them or gives some power to their competitors. You've been as close as you can ever get
1: to multiple world champions. What separates them? They're all different. As every human in this room is different. They're all different to each other. Um, There's literally very few characteristics. You would have thought, "Ah, this is what makes a world champion. It's these characteristics. It's not. So if I take you through them one by one, Michael, um, he he taught Nico how to to work really hard. Michael wasn't the most skillful in the car. I've already said that was Lewis. But he knew how to extract every millisecond out of himself and every millisecond out of the team. He was a leader that absolutely he would say, I'm going to go this way. The team would follow him there. So much so that both sides of the garage wanted him to do well. So much so that one of my regrets in my career is we didn't get a win for him. That that still hurts me today. Yeah. He, he deserved a win. And how did he take people on that journey with him? Um, a couple of things. So first and foremost, he um, had a genuine interest in who you were and your life. I went motorbiking on track with him, uh, as in race bikes on track with him in poor Ricard. And we had the time of our lives. We both still laugh about it. Um, for many years after that. Um, he knew at the time my partner's birthday, flowers arrive at home, and it embarrassed me because I didn't do that much. <laughs> he would take a genuine interest in who you are, who your family is, what drives you, every single person in the team. And that's hard to do. Mm. And it's not because he's doing it because he wants to gain advantage. He does it because he really cares. That's, that's Michael. The Michael you had front facing in front of the media is a very different Michael to what was behind the scenes. Right. Um, And uh, that's how he did it fundamentally. So he would bring everyone on the journey and lead everyone on the journey. He would extract every, he would squeeze himself for every millisecond he had. He would work as late as he needed to, every hour he needed to. Um, That was how he operated. And Nico learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, It formed the Nico that then became a world champion ultimately, which is squeeze everything out of you you can at the cost of everything else. Um, So much so you end up having to leave after winning that world title exactly that he He, he, the sacrifice i talked to you about before that was painful to me where you let go of family and friends and loved ones he did for that year and he decided and um, all the respect to him for it that actually that's not the life he wanted um lewis just had these as i said it's this oodles of natural talent um and with him he's he's got these tendencies and traits where when you go out in sp1 He's like an octopus all over the wheel. He'll change every setting on the wheel near enough um, and explore it. But it's what makes him incredible. And if I give you an example of it, there was a, a time where on simulation in Brazil, it said hold sixth gear up the hill. Um, sorry, go into seventh gear uh, up the hill. And um, within two laps, Nico was was doing exactly as we asked him to do. Within two laps, Lewis went, this doesn't feel like back down to six, and was finding a tenth there. And it took until the end of the session before Nico saw the data and saw that. He's this optimizer that he'll use data as a starting ground, but he's got a feel beyond anything else for it. And he has no issue exploring the boundaries. And that originally manifested itself in, you'd often see him go off at turn one. He'd find the absolute limit of braking and it would just push him wide at turn one, then bought the lap. And one of our biggest frustrations with him was that out of 20 laps, he did one. You're like, come on, you've got to do more than that. And actually, if you look at the maturity Lewis had between 13 to now, you'll see he completes every lap. So he's now found a way of of still gaining the experience of the moment of the lap out of it. But he was this perfectionist that wanted, and braking was his strength, his forte, maximize everything under braking. And then I know the limits of the car, and then I can build from there and get into the rhythm of things. Um But his is... Because he's explored all these boundaries, he knows in just a few laps in FP1, and he learns the track incredibly quickly, what the boundaries of the car is, what the limits are already within his tools that he has available on the steering wheel, which are quite fast for what it's worth, and understands therefore how to get the car into the right positioning for as the grip comes up. Very, very impressive. Where others are still just spending seven or eight laps learning the track, he's explored quite a bit of the boundaries. Um, Now that came with some downsides often. Often he would change the car so quick on that you'd lose yourself. Certainly as engineers, it's difficult when your data's all moving, the track's moving, the grip's moving, the driver's moved everything on the steering wheel, you don't know where you are, and then he comes in and we've changed Bell and Balance. You think, okay, we're starting from scratch here, basically. And that's some of the reasons why, at times, you'll see Lewis drops backwards. And often when he jumps forwards again is he's gone to a setup that's known, and now he's back on the money. But he's able to do that, and many drivers aren't. He's able to explore off and accept they'll have a whole session, perhaps in the wrong place on setup, but he's learning from it. And that's Lewis all over. So you have this time at Mercedes.
0: Eight drivers, championships, seven constructors, all the other way around.
1: Um, definitely eight constructors. Eight constructors, seven and drivers. Eight titles. Yeah, contentious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eight constructors' titles, eight drivers' titles. Right.
0: <laughs> you can't say. I can't say. Don't answer. The,
1: the, no, I mean it, 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 it is what it is in the history books. Um, correct. But that was the time at Mercedes. Yeah
0: and then you make the decision to walk away from one of the best on the grid to join at the time one of the worst on the grid please talk us through that decision making process
1: for for many years um i'd i'd built up first of all a team behind me so One of the things I've been focused on at Mercedes is I I knew my long-term wasn't going to be doing strategy for the rest of my life. Loved it to bits. It's a brilliant job, but um, for for many years built up a really strong team behind the scenes. And in fact, from from around 21 onwards, the hard work was done by them. I was simply uh, making a final decision, but the hard work was done by them or enacting um, more aspects of my job, including team orders, other aspects of motorsport, advising Toto, all that sort of thing. Um, The reason being was that um, Toto was kind enough with his time to give me um, as much of his experience as he could. He knew where he was forming me towards. That doesn't mean I had a job within Mercedes to be a team principal there, but he provided me his time and his knowledge and experience and provided me more and more responsibilities back to what I originally described to you before, where if there's an opportunity... I'll grab it and I'll take it and I'll put it in at the cost of time and sleep and all the other things. So that started happening. So simulator drivers, then young drivers, then race drivers fell underneath me, then started working with our Formula E outfit, started working with our GT3 outfit, started working with elements of finance, elements of um, the cost cap and other bits and bobs. Just kept pulling it in. Of course, you can't just keep doing, so what I did is not absolve the responsibilities but build a team that just did all the strategy bits for me and so I could focus on that growth. The direction of the path being clear, once you've based yourself out of engineering and you're focused a lot more about how the company runs, you have a better idea of how to step into this role. Not that I ever thought this role would appear, but if it did appear, I wanted to have the maximum amount of exposure so that I'd be ready to jump into it. Simple as that. Um... Toto is incredible at what he does, no, no doubt about it. And has many, many more years as the best, one of the best team principals in the pit lane. And so it got to a point where I had to make a decision for my life, not, not for Mercedes life. And um, that decision came when I very swiftly realized that actually I think the growth opportunities I have, the growth learning I have, I, I enjoyed learning tremendously. And that was slowing down in Mercedes. I can go into a completely different level by going elsewhere. And so I had honest conversations with Toto across that year period. It, was, it wasn't a big surprise to him in the winter. Yeah. And it's why also he was accepting of the fact that he he let me move on. He wanted me to move on as well as a result of it. Um,
2: Did he give you a particular piece of advice in going into the role that he that could share with us?
1: I, I think he said, don't be shit, um, <laughs> was his advice, uh, which I'm trying to do. Um no. Uh, other than that, um, he, he knows that i had been forming for this for quite a while. So there was little he could provide me above it. But even today, uh, and not just him, I would say Fred and uh, Otmar before we left and a few others were, were guiding voices, Zach, um, where I, I can happily call them, even though they're adversaries, and um, not ask for advice, but they'll give me guidance and different things.
0: Can we explore day one at Williams then, please? Because you arrive at a team where they're at a low ebb, You know, they work hard, as hard as every other team all week long, and then get no results at the weekend, underfunded for year after year. Some of the stuff here would have been obsolete when you arrived compared to what you were working with at Mercedes. So what do you do on day one? How do you communicate the start of a new period here? The start of it
1: is actually find out what our strengths and weaknesses are. Every organisation will have strengths and weaknesses, and there are elements here that are stronger than the Mercedes. One of them is passion, which is what drives this team. Um, this team still has a, a family feel behind it, which I like. But it's the reason why we have a car out the door is not because um, we have digital systems telling us how to do 20,000 parts and how to put them together. It's because individuals would do what it took across a period of three weeks, um, including sleeping here, as required, to get the car out the door. That's what Williams is. It's what it embodies. It's embodied for 20 years or so. But the starting point is you find out what, what makes our organization strong? What makes our organization weak? Um, don't assume. Find out. Find out from the people that have been here doing the hard work for many years. Um, so a lot of the initial journey, and it still is today for that matter as well, is I'm trying to go to every single level of the organization and talk to them. The second thing is you show your vision for where you want to go. And the vision I've shared here is is a very clear one. It started with this. I don't care about 23. I don't care about 24. And I really don't care about 25. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Uh, but that's not what's of interest to me. I'm interested in, 25 is a bit of a borderline one, but 23 and 24, I don't care about. We can finish last. Break everything. This is an opportunity you'll never have in your lifetime. Break everything. You have uh, carte blanche from me. You have a, um, a free pass to, if we can do it better, let's do it better. Let's talk about it. Don't carry on with the same way we've been doing it for 20 years, And we'll go backwards as a result of that, but break everything, learn and use the experience. So for example, how we approach racing was we highlighted before the season starts, these races, and they would say that you could highlight from a distance as well, these races we're going to be good at. All the other ones, I want to do learning on those weekends. It is about learning. Try something you haven't tried before. Um, It doesn't matter if it's a setup direction, it's a driving style, it's how we do data, it's building performance engineers, it's um, how we use the factory. Learn. On those weekends. Make sure you set out what you're gonna learn, learn on those weekends. You'll never get this opportunity again. Same within the Aero department. Let's let's focus on actually doing things from ground roots properly. Do flow dynamics, not worry about what other people are doing. Understand our car, do flow dynamics, do proper design of experiment, learn from experiment, feedback to everyone from experiment. You'll see how I've used the actions, they apply here. And um, to the credit of the organization there was little resistance to that we have a problem at the moment which is always the same problem which is there's a little bit of a taste of success and when there's a taste of success you want to hold on to what you've got but putting the, the sort of that into context we have as many points less than a top team that score on one race weekend so it's success by the measure of where we were but it's not success i don't want that from this team. I don't want that for the future of this team. We want more than that. And to get more than that, where we are at the moment is on the wrong slope. We have to change everything still. And it's the hardest thing to do. Change. If you look at many organizations, changing what you're doing is incredibly difficult. Um, it's why a number of companies that were some of the most successful in the world, Blockbuster, went bankrupt nearly overnight because you don't change. And the same happened to us. Have sense sensed fear from some people here? I don't think it's fear. There's sort of two beliefs essentially in there. One is, I've done it this way for a long period of time. And so that's not necessarily fear, it's comfort. But it's comfort in this works. Why are we changing it? Um, and often it's difficult to know what works and what doesn't work. I mean, if I said to you, use your left hand to right with when you're right-handed, because it's change, that's not good change. And often it's different, uh, difficult to differentiate what's good change and what's bad change. So you're not just literally changing everything. We're not gonna make people sit on boxes, which, which aren't anymore, actually. Um, uh, we're, we're going to, to properly change structures to be um, for the good. Sometimes people are afraid of the challenge that's gonna be in front of them. Sometimes people are afraid of frail- failure. So I go back to the first of those. What you do is you first of all create exactly the right culture. I don't, I'm not worried if anyone fails, as long as we are changing things for the good. But what you've done yesterday is now not good enough. And what you're going to do today will not be good enough tomorrow. How do you know, though, if someone
0: isn't failing because they're not good enough or they're not working hard enough? And how do you know they're failing because
1: they're pushing the envelope? It's a good question, first and foremost. You you start by having, it won't be one individual, myself, or even a select individual, which is a management committee. You have a leadership team that know what excellence looks like. That's the key behind it all. What excellence looks like and how to drive people towards that fundamentally. And when you start getting the vision of what excellence looks like sufficiently down the organisation, even if the individual doesn't recognise it, you'll find a level that does recognise this is what excellence is and we're not anywhere near close to it anymore. And you redefine the boundaries where you are. Even if you don't know what excellence looks like, here's where we are today, here's where I want you to be, all the way over there, how do we get there? And it's not by doing this, it is by large momentum jumps on where you're going. So to your question, Even if you don't really know whether what you're doing is pushing the boundaries or not, change the the game. Push the boundaries into something completely different, and you will fail by doing that. And and fundamentally you could say, yeah, but you could be failing already because you're right up against the boundary. I can assure you all of us will look back on what we're doing here, and three years' time ago uh, was nowhere near the boundary. It's much further away than that. So it's about defining what excellence looks like, defining what the gap looks like, and defining a pathway that allows people to get there in a safe way without fearing the failure that comes out of it as the result.
2: When we interviewed Toto, he he told us about on his first day at Mercedes, he gave a speech to all the staff and he distinctly recounts uh, an engineer saying to him, I will believe it when I see it. We've heard these fine words before and he recognized the need, as you've said, James, to role model, to demonstrate that I'm going to do this. Can you give us an example of where you've given a tangible example of you being prepared to break the rules.
1: Um, not so much break the rules, but in the period of time I am here, um, the update that was due for Canada, it's a large update for this team. It looked Everything was on target, and then suddenly everything fell way behind. And we were going through an empowerment, empowerment of our team to say, you tell us whether we can make it or not. And the answer that came back is we can't make it, which I reflected on. <laughs> Um, then we had a lot of damage in uh, the race just before on the floors. And now we're in a bit of a tricky situation that there is no existing floors and there's no future floors. So I uh, went downstairs with Fred, our COO, um, went downstairs, brought around about 50 people together and said the following. We will get this update to Canada. There's no ifs, buts and maybes. We will get this update to Canada. And I will be here every evening with you until we get this update to Canada. It's not that I'm useful, i would be crap at laminating floors, um, but I wanted them to see that um, it's the journey that I believe in so much that I will put all of my time into it, not other things, all of it into this. The next element of this is what I explained, is we will not have many opportunities of points this year. I know that, but one of them is absolutely Canada. I am confident we will score points in Canada. And thank God we did, otherwise I'd look foolish. Um, to the extent where we took a new panel unit as well with Alex in Canada, literally all eggs in one basket. Not a great way of doing Formula One racing, by the way, but um, you've got to sometimes back what you believe in to that extent. And I walked around um, and met a, a lot of people um, across the next few evenings. And in fact, I didn't have to stay late beyond Friday because it was done a day and a half early. Surprised everyone, but it was done early. Um, but actually, some of the, the best memories I have from this year is walking around and seeing some of the night shift down in the, um, in the composites area and the floors being built and just seeing them build up over time and the kit building up over time, um, and that's where you put you put your actions where your your words are, um, and I uh, I enjoyed every minute of that actually for what it's worth. It's not something you can do habitually day to day, but I wanted to demonstrate to the organisation that this isn't about one one of us and I'm no different to the rest of them. I want us to have success and to have success means we've got to do things that are tough and difficult." Um, so that was the start of it. The same words actually got told to me here when I'm uh, I'm here as well. Which is there were a number of people. There's something called change saturation, um, which happens when you've had uh, large amounts of sways of change from different individuals. And this organisation is probably the epitome of it in Formula One. It has it's had large amounts of management change over the last ten years, and they become fatigued by it. So when you change, like yeah just changing for the sake of changing again um i had a bit of that at the beginning and actually i'm thankful for it because it means the individuals felt already that they could talk to me openly and honestly so i'd already started to create a bit of that there and and thank them for it and said that's fine let's action speak rather than anything else and as you would expect momentum builds momentum so as soon as we had a little bit of momentum on actually the wind tunnel's starting to produce some really good things and the update's starting to produce some really good things and we're getting things out the door and we're scoring points. You build in that momentum with everyone else and you can start to see the direction of travel with. The hardest thing is that direction is still very light compared to the direction of travel we need to be. We have a tremendous road in front of us. We've just started on it. And it's making sure we build momentum, not slow down or accept that what we're doing at the moment is okay because it's not. We're far away from where we need to be. And that change needs to double down, not half going forward
0: brilliant it's time for our quick fire questions the first one of which is what are the three non-negotiable
1: behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into honesty it, it's um, incredibly important to me respect yep. to, to your peers around you to make sure that you you give them the time of day you listen to them and you understand what they're doing um, and actually the third one I would embody which is passion here because the passion is what drives it and I absolutely keep it. It's tremendous here. I hope we never lose it. What advice would you give to a teenage James just starting out? Probably work harder at school in hindsight. You would have been, could have had a better, easier time. It would have made your life easier later on. No, I, I think the the main advice I would give is believe in, in yourself, believe in what you're capable of. And um, dreams can become reality if you're prepared to sacrifice enough to get there. What's your biggest strength? What's your greatest weakness? Biggest strength is uh, I think I have the ability to um, listen to a wide, a wide, varied selection of individuals and communicate with a wide selection of individuals as well. So, in other words, I, I'm able to understand from from very quickly some quite difficult subjects, not the level of depth that many individuals would, but enough to be able to talk about it. And I'm able to communicate and direct individuals. All of my decisions aren't going to be 100% bang on, but often within an organization, someone that's strong enough to make a decision is what you're looking for. Because that often is better than just going around in circles. I appreciate that's what we do for a living, but uh, you get the idea. Biggest weakness is um, I all too easily will get dragged into the details because I love the details. Um, And actually, there's not enough time of the day. So you've got to focus on the big picture items in order to move forward and the details you have to entrust and empower individuals to get on with it.
2: Sure. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever received and why? Um, uh,
1: It's from a very good CEO uh, who's a good friend of mine um, who said, trust your instinct. Don't delay the difficult decisions. Get on with them because all you do is regret not doing them six months earlier. And finally, your one golden rule that you'd like to leave the viewers and the listeners with for living a high-performance life. I know I spoke about before about giving up a lot in the life, but there is also a balance to it. You need your health. Your health is... if you want the biggest and best investment you can make in life? It's into your health. Because it will give you returns beyond any others. So eating properly, being fit and healthy, just means you perform better at work. And the hour that you take to do that will reward you more than the hour you would spend otherwise. The the second piece of advice is... um, there is going to be a point where actually just taking a break and walking around will give you far more return than doing an extra 10 minutes of sitting there scratching your head fundamentally. You'd be surprised how the human brain works, but the best ideas I've had aren't sat at a desk for 10 hours. It's in the shower, going for a run. At 4 a.m., my brain just wakes up at 4 a.m., have really good ideas. I have a pen and paper and I write them down um, by the bed. Maybe that says something to you about Not very intelligent, but somehow my sleeping brain's quite good, uh, so it makes up for it. But... Give your brain the breaks it needs to have the real epiphanies because they don't happen when you just punish it for 10 hours in a row.
0: Listen, thank you so much for sitting and sharing so much with us. We look forward to 2026. There you go. Thanks very much. I hope you're patient. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, mate. Damien. Jake. What an interesting
2: individual and what remarkable stories. I loved it. It reminded me of some of our classic episodes that we've been lucky enough to do of hearing somebody tell you the real cost of going after Mm. high performance in a hugely competitive industry.
0: And actually, when we spoke about that and he mentioned his, you know, not seeing some of his family's nieces grow up, his voice cracked a bit, didn't it? And I think that, you know, he's comfortable with the sacrifice that he's made. But it's a really important conversation to say that. If you're comfortable with it, you can do it. There is going to be cost though. There is going to be collateral damage, but it's it's an argument that you can't disagree with that if you really want greatness, you have to sacrifice.
2: Yeah, there is always a price to everything that, that you're And Again, just to emphasize here, we're not telling people that you have to work for nothing. We're not telling you have to sleep in the office. That's, that's a choice that every individual has to make, but you have to understand that the cost of that comes with, uh, that there is a price to be paid. And I think James was really clear about that, that it was a price that he was willing to pay. And, you know, we asked him off camera, do you regret it? And he said, well, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't have done that. So that's a man at peace with his decision. He's also a, a real
0: master of, of creating change and driving change that he's seen in previous teams working with Toto Wolf. I mean, let's not underestimate that trying to change people is almost the single hardest
2: thing that you can do as a leader. Yeah, I think that the, what he said there is that the, we all develop the concepts of like heuristics and mental models of the way that we do things and we'd like to be as efficient as possible. So what he's coming in and uh, advocating is that what you're doing isn't good enough. So you either have to embrace new ways of working or you maybe have to take your ways and go somewhere else, but you can't exist there. And that is always going to create friction. It's going to create resistance and fear. Mm. Uh, but I think the way that he's willing to role model that himself, you know, the example of him coming in, in the evenings, working late, being visible is a really powerful message to everybody. The one that stood out for me was that conversation when he said he came on the microphone and said, I've cost us the race here. And he understood that that's broadcast to not only the drivers but to millions of other people that's psychological safety amy edmondson the pioneer of that phrase says that change can only happen when leaders role model it because you give permission for everybody else to understand that failure isn't terminal in an organization james is a great example of somebody that understands the power of having to role model this not just talk about it
0: absolutely thank you mate thank you mate As always, thank you so much for tuning in to High Performance and giving us some of your time. Um, I think one of the magic things about James is his ability to change and adapt to the world around him. And you can learn all the skills of that in our brand new book, How to Change Your Life. It's out now, wherever you normally go and buy your books. Don't forget, you can listen ad free on the High Performance app, but there's also loads more exclusive high performance content. Just go to the App Store and search for High Performance. As always, Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from these shows. Remain humble, curious, empathetic, and we'll see you soon.
3: Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com work. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time.